Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast, the podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So Judith, let's catch up a little bit since last week. I just wondered how you're doing. How's everything been going for you so far? Work-life balance, all that good stuff. Any notes to report? I'm struggling a little bit this week with all the kids home. It's hard to, you know, get done what I need to get done. I had something slightly exciting happening that re- that relates back to uh, a previous episode where we talked about conferencing and conferencing online. I have a conference coming up actually in a couple of weeks um, for a new list that I just took over and I'll be attending a virtual conference and I had a training for shares. So the conference that I'm attending uh, for Jewish studies they did a training where they invited all of their chairs that will be hosting sessions. And they did like a really nice walk through through Zoom, which was fabulous because I'd heard you and other people that I work with talking about all of these functions in Zoom that I had no idea about. And so I got a nice uh, virtual tour and was introduced to all these different features. And now I'm super pumped about attending my first virtual conference. So that'll be exciting. That's not until the week of the 13th. So I'll report back on, you know, how that conference goes then. And then maybe we can, you know, chat more about continue our conversation about conferences that we had a while ago. But other than that, things are pretty much the same. We're enjoying, you know, the Christmas season, whatnot. Um, Everybody at home, I'm trying to make the best of that, even though it is stressful at times. How's all that going for you? As noted, I had my children all home for the last three weeks. The idea being that if they came home the week before Thanksgiving, obviously the sort of week of Thanksgiving and the week after, that that would kind of bookend any travel that anyone had done, even though, you know, it was recommended not to celebrate the holidays with family. That being said, it is Sunday, December 6th. We're recording this and my children are scheduled to go back to school tomorrow. We all are having mixed feelings about this. We had a pretty rigorous debate about this earlier today, whether or not this is safe. Is it safer at school? I was just saying my husband, I think in some ways, at least because the children are still children, they're under someone else's care, they kind of have to follow the rules a little bit more than say if they were at a large store or sporting event or something like that. Kids have to listen to the principal and the leadership. But there's just a lot of questions for me as to how safe this is going to be when our numbers continue to soar in Michigan and across the country. I will report back as well and let you know how that goes. It's an interesting time indeed. And this uh, has kind of been a really interesting semester probably for a lot of us, myself included. Obviously, we had a ton of new challenges and changes. So this also happens to be a year that I moved into more of a leadership position. I used to just kind of be leading a team of like three or four people, but now I'm in charge of all the English professors across five or six campuses. And so that's been interesting. And in the meantime, however, we had a lot of other changes. As you know, we went to virtual synchronous learning using Zoom, like you said, And we also changed our curriculum this year. We changed the books we're using. And for those of you that use APA, APA, of course, moved to version seven. All in all, we've had like a ton of changes and I'm in this leadership role. And what that means for me is I think we have about 30 sections of English courses running, which I know is much smaller than other colleges. But 
I'm sort of meant to be checking in with all of these folks, making sure if they're recording their sessions in a way that's meaningful for the students. Are they grading in a timely manner? Are they grading in an effective manner, right? Not just saying, well, you got 100 out of 100. I mean, did they give them feedback? Did they use a rubric? That kind of thing. And so, you know, it's not really that hard until I notice a person isn't actually doing their job. And so this kind of brings me to my topic or today thinking about why do I find it so difficult to intervene? Um, Why do I end up having these conversations with staff? And in the end, I feel like I'm the one apologizing when I didn't do anything wrong. And so I wondered if there's any connections to gender with this. Why am I avoiding this confrontation? What does my sort of little small experience relay about women in leadership roles? And I just think there's a lot to sort of think through in that field of study. I agree with that, Erin. I think that's a great set of questions. And there's there's a lot to think about, not just in terms of your own experience, but also in the larger context of female leadership in higher education and in the academy. As our listeners are probably as aware as we are, gender and leadership behavior has garnered a lot of attention in the last years, if not decades. There's been a lot of research on how women behave when they are in these leadership positions, what characterizes how they lead. That's right. And we found a ton of articles and research about this, but most of them seem to have common themes and common attributes ascribed to both genders. Do you have one that's sort of representative of our findings? So in a journal article titled The Impact of Culture and Gender on Leadership Behavior, Higher Education and Management Perspective by Imram Zamana and Badi, the authors report that research on gender differences in leadership behavior proved that women are more democratic or participative in their leadership behavior and men tend to adopt more autocratic or directive leadership style. This is a sort of a great set of questions to start us off in the discussion today, which is the sort of question of uh, the overlap between other stereotypically gendered behaviors, such as being more connective, interpersonal in their relationships with others that, you know, we usually associate with women, and then the sort of more authoritative, top-down sort of behaviors that we that we tend to associate with men. How does that figure into the way that women or men lead and the differences and the question of effectiveness as well. So we can see in the same research that women are more concerned with both the maintenance of interpersonal relationship and task accomplishments than men are. In a review of 86 studies about gender and leadership effectiveness, results showed that men and women do not differ in organizational effectiveness, but men were more effective in roles defined as masculine and women are more effective in feminine roles. So again, I think this sort of sets up a broader question that we can talk a little bit about. What do you, what do you think, Erin, that means exactly and how does that speak to you? Well, I think anecdotally speaking, I have observed that a lot of times women are in these, quote, more feminine roles, right? The ones that are more coaching, caretaking, mentorship. But I think there is a lot to unpack there. It's nature versus nurture. And I kind of always cringe when certain qualities are, quote, feminine and others are, quote, masculine, right? Because what does that really mean? Why is it that, you know, communication is a feminine attribute? That just always kind of bothers me a little bit because I have heard that stereotype my whole life that women talk more than men or are more communicative. And I think that's a cop out. And I don't think it's necessarily true. You know, I think you can find an exception to every rule. You get my husband talking about flooring 
or wood or, you know, something in his field. And he's very, very chatty. And I, I mean, he is just as talkative as I am, if not more so, depending on the topic. I kind of take issue sometimes with labeling these um traits as feminine or masculine, first of all. Secondly, you know, I think a lot of us have been pushed into sort of this behavior. So I think we can talk about that a little bit more. And um, later in that same article, the authors conclude that culture influences male leaders to adopt a more authoritarian leadership style. What's really important there is that it's a cultural influence. It's not just something that someone's innately born with, right? Because they're a man, I think the culture shapes people who, you know, identify as male and female into certain roles. I don't think people are born that way. Some of us were taught, you know, in order to be women, we're supposed to be more mindful, we're more polite, we're instructed in these things. And with all this in mind, this brings me to a question that you had brought up to me earlier, which is why can't some of these traits that are quote unquote feminine also be considered signs of effective leadership? That there seems to be the assumption that the strong, dominant, authoritarian leader or quote the more masculine leader is the more effective of the two. Why is that? And is there any way we can change that framework? I think that's very interesting. I think you're, you know, you're opening up a really great set of questions with that because I agree that sort of the what we generally perceive as masculine traits, what you're pointing out, competitiveness, autocratic behaviors, things like that, versus what we associate with women, communication and empathy sides of things are certainly things that we have learned. That's sort of what we value. And there's a lot of research to back up that that's something that kids learn as early as like the preschool years. And so then there's this mechanism that has somehow defined that these perceived masculine traits make better leader. There's the idea that to be a good leader, you have to be strong, you have to make strong decisions, you have to put your foot down, you know, you're, again, like I said earlier, it's sort of you're you're leading from the top, this has somehow become the guide to how to be a good leader. And I, for example, that's what um, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In was all about, right? The book was all about how can women change their behaviors and their mindsets and their ways of acting to become more successful leaders. And so what I've always wondered in response to that is the question of couldn't we redefine sort of what makes a good leader and take in some more of these other um, other characteristics. And I think there's very good points to be made there. I think that there's a lot of research also to back up that leaders who are more communicative and who are more focused on, for example, teamwork and uh, encouraging their team members to bring in their ideas and things like that, which is generally something that research suggests women are more likely to do, that that's something that actually helps companies succeed, both economically and on sort of other other planes. That's always a question for me that comes out of that is the question, okay, is it always just mandatory for women to become more like men or are there things that we can that sort of can go vice versa, that can go both ways? And again, to just affirm what you're saying, I don't think that these are innate traits. I don't think that men are only this way and women are only that way. But I do think that a lot of those are learned behaviors. And I do think that in the way that leadership has been framed, we have excluded women based on their behaviors, right? We raise them to act a certain way. And then we tell them, well, if you act like that, you can't be a leader. So what are the conversations that we need to have as more and more women are entering the leadership positions? What can they bring to the table if they sort of 
continue to act in the ways that, that we were socially trained to act rather than once we get to those points saying, all right, I have to be more assertive and I have to be more top down and I have to be more competitive, which a lot of times, let's be honest, is then held against them anyways. Very, very true. And I think we, as well as our listeners, have all observed situations where this dichotomy occurs. That is to say, women who are assertive and clear with their intent and their leadership roles are characterized as bitches or being shrill, whereas men in the same position doing the same kind of things are assertive, commanding. We see this right now in our very home state of Michigan, which is that we have a female governor who has been forced by the conditions of COVID to make some pretty tough decisions. The type of comments I see online often indicate, you know, that she's a bitch, that she needs to be impeached, that she's overstepping her bounds. And I just think it's all related to gender, right? That she is being assertive and people don't respond to that necessarily well. So Governor Whitmer presents like one interesting scenario, but then Judith, how does this like relate back to our work in academia? Do female leaders across the country and across the world face similar challenges when they're leading college campuses? You had actually found a pretty good article from the Chronicle that sort of spoke to nine women who are in academic leadership. What, if anything, did these female leaders have to say about what it means to be a female in academic leadership to sort of bring it back to higher education? You know, right. I think the article was definitely very interesting. They talked to nine women that were in leadership roles at different universities. One of them was Marco Silver, who was the president of Bennington College. And she was talking about the different expectations women leaders face. And one of the things that she said was that women leaders are expected to be both personable and authoritative, both analytic and affable, both warm, including being open to any question, no matter how off-putting and clearly commanding. So I think that what's interesting here is that the expectations that women face as leaders are just very contradictory in a lot of ways. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past, about how we face those expectations as instructors. And we see in student evaluations how much students really have that expectation that, you know, we're supposed to be warm and compassionate, but we're also supposed to, if we're too warm, then the assumption is that we don't actually understand the subject matter. There's something about competence that's linked to how warm and compassionate we are. And so I think that there's a an interesting point to be made about the way in which women are struggling more with these sort of opposing expectations. Is that something that you experience too? How do you feel about that? That sounds familiar to me because I do receive feedback every semester from we now have like an online student survey. And I'm actually very curious to see if and how this is any different because I've been teaching solely in this virtual synchronous space. And so side note on that, I'm really curious to see how these might be different and what they say about me this semester as opposed to in the past. But it's funny because mine always say stuff like, oh, she's so nice and kind. And I was really nervous about taking a writing course in college, but she just made it really, um, really, you know, she's really accessible and really compassionate and kind. But don't expect her 
to give you a 100 out of 100 because I don't think she ever does. And so there was this kind of like weird, while I'm a nice, approachable professor, part of that expectation, I guess, was that I'm supposed to give you a really easy grade too. Like just because I'm a nice person, (laughs) that's supposed to extend to this idea that like you're going to get 100 out of 100 on everything or whatever, an A+. And there's just not a perfect essay that's ever turned in an undergraduate class. And there's not really a perfect essay that's turned in in a graduate course, right? There just isn't. There's always room for improvement. And so I do kind of see that on the one hand, I am being called forth for my, I was accessible. um, But then I also feel this like pressure to do those things too, that when a student emails me, I check my email probably a good 10 times a day. I check it once an hour and I feel like it's really, really important for me to write back. And so I wonder if that's a little bit of that, if, if that's just my work ethic or that is in some way tied to like this good sense of communication. With my colleagues, they've kind of said the same thing as so far. I'm not really sure. I haven't had to have that many difficult conversations yet. But what really bothered me in my last sort of interaction you know, on the one hand, am I easygoing? Am I carefree? But on the other hand, am I now because I'm actually doing my job, I'm being harsh or something like that. Like part of my job as a program director is to make sure that the other instructors are doing their job. And I was meant to made to feel sort of bad about that, that I called this person out on not doing their work. You know, the main role in this job is to grade papers. And if you're 90 days behind, that's not doing the job, you know, and gender has nothing to do with it. It's just, did you do it or didn't you, you know, and all I can see is what's on a canvas shell. So I don't know. I think that there is kind of a struggle for women because it goes back to that whole idea. Like, you know, are you being bitchy or are you just being strong in your belief in your commitment to quality education, right? That you want to make sure the students are getting the best. And like, I think that's a really hard, that's, that's why leadership scares me a little bit, you know, like I also am emotional too. So is that going to be a problem? Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot there. That's actually starting another point. One of the other women that they talked to for their article referred to this as a double bind, which I think is really interesting and, and revealing. I think multiple of the women talked about how the same behavior in a man can be perceived as a strong leadership or as somebody who is accomplished and successful, whereas behavior that you're describing somehow triggers a negative reaction in the people that you're dealing with. And somehow they feel like, like you said, like you're perceived as a bitch or somebody who is dismissive or patronizing or something like that. And so those consequences, we really have to keep in mind when we talk about leadership and getting more women into leadership. And so there has to be sort of a mind shift around the entire university environment where we have to understand, where we have to get people to think about what good leadership qualities are in gender neutral terms or to be more critical of the ways in which we're evaluating different behaviors. It's always a little bit hypothetical to say, well, if a man did this, you know, people would respond differently. But I, at the same time, I do think that there are larger conversations there to be had. And again, to go back to what you were saying earlier, being emotional, being passionate, those kinds of things. We found another really interesting article, and they, uh, the authors of that article made an interesting point that I wanted to raise as well. This was an Inside Higher Ed, and we'll leave the article in the show notes as well. And they described an experience where they would be commended for those sort of perceived feminine qualities in their leadership. 
And they were talking about how that was sort of undermining their potential as leaders. So they were saying that people would come and talk to them and say, hey, you did that really well. That was really passionate or, you know, you're really warm, you're really enthusiastic articulate, nurturing. And so they said, even though those sort of compliments that they receive about their leadership might be well-intentioned, but at the same time, they can undermine women's um, leaders' intentional, goal-driven, and research-based strategies and efforts and their power. So when we when we commend women for being nurturing or passionate or identifying those as positive leadership qualities, then that sort of undermines at the same time their authority, their level of authority, their ability to be seen as strategic leaders, as ambitious leaders and goal-driven leaders that try to sort of take the university into a particular direction. So that's another point to think about. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It's hard to come out of this conversation with like a clear sense of how these things should be because it's. I think it's really complex and it's really complicated to think through the ways in which these different traits that we bring to the role as leaders because that's how we were raised and that's how sort of we were taught to function in society. And then to think about how to evaluate those. The article that I was just referencing sort of makes an opposite argument of what I was saying earlier, where I was saying, can we think about these particularly like feminine qualities or qualities that are perceived as particularly feminine as positive attributes to leadership? Whereas the argument that they are now making in the article is to say, no, we should not elevate those because they undermine women's authority and women's position as leaders. So I think there's a lot there's a lot there to think about. I don't know, do you have any thoughts or responses to that complex question? It's really complex and it's funny because in my organization we recently have been asked to participate in I can only describe it as like a leadership platform. And we all had to take these surveys about like, you know, answering these different sort of questions about how you'd approach a different situation. And then everyone gets their leadership summary or what kind of leader are you? And so I just, (laughs) I was just looking at this and I wanted to see if this jibes with what you know about me or if this in any way seems gendered. So everyone gets like two different um, categories. And the first one is called the equalizer. And it says equalizers are supposed to be level-headed people whose power comes from keeping the world in balance ethically and practically. And so I thought, oh yeah, that's me. The second role I've been ascribed is I'm a provider. I do think this kind of maybe connects to a little bit of what we're talking about because it says providers sense other people's feelings and they feel compelled to recognize these feelings, give them a voice, and then act on them. Just thought, wow, that just makes me sound like I am, you know, that's my strength is like taking care of people, which there's nothing wrong with that either. But in the feedback, in the assessment of like different professors and things like that, I don't know if I always want my, you know, evaluation to be like, she's so warm. She's so kind. She's so compassionate. Like, those are all awesome traits. I do not disagree. I think I'm all of those things. But like, I want it to be like, she really knows her content area. Like, I asked her about 20th century American lit, and she gave me such a nuanced and interesting and well thought out answer. Like, that's what I want. Or her feedback on my essay was super helpful. I didn't realize that I was having trouble with organizing my essays. You know, I want that, not just like, 
oh, I've also heard quirky, eccentric. I've had ones that commented a little bit on how I look. Not so much because I'm getting older now, but, you know, I've had a few situations where I was reading between the lines and I thought there was a little bit something hinting at that. That's not what's going to get me a promotion necessarily, right, is that I'm eccentric and quirky and warm. I want more (laughs) usable attributes that say I'm knowledgeable in my content area. But I don't know if that might just be students are not as sophisticated as that. You're not there. You already have four kids at home. You don't need to go to work and then have (laughs) 25 more. Like that's not the point of being in the college classroom is to nurture more people. And so I can understand, I could see that that would be frustrating and that that, you know, would be disheartening at times if that's sort of, all that you're getting, right? If it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be sort of any recognition of your competence and like your, you know, your professional competence. Like there's just sort of like a level of professionalism that's, that's missing where, you know, I don't know if students truly understand the relationship that they have with you in the classroom either. It sounds like, you know, to go back a little bit to the profile that you were describing, I think that was really interesting. Did you feel like there was an evaluation in there somehow. So like, you know, when they were describing you as a provider and as an equalizer, was there like an, a sense in the description of this is a positive leadership style or this or a strong leadership style or a weak leadership style? Was there like pro and cons listed? You know, are the things that you're getting in response in the emails? I have a lot of questions about this, if you can't tell. Um, do they <laughs> yeah, give right. you like advice to in response to these particular profiles that they gave you as to like, how can you make better use of this particular profile? How can you make sure that you leave that profile and get to one that's more desirable? Or how how does all that play together? Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm really fascinated by this whole thing. I found it pretty fascinating too. So they do not suggest that any one role is better than the other. They're all, they're all good. And that's kind of like their whole thing is like focus in on your strengths and the idea that like, if you are good at this, this is what makes you a good leader. So to like really grow, if you are this sort of like person who always sees things in terms of like, you know, ethical and moral battles then build on that. Okay. And so they try to just say, you know, um, everyone has natural advantages. So you just work on yours and what, you know, if your strength is that you provide support for your team members, how can you do that better? And so that's kind of what the little emails are about every week. It kind of gives you ideas to like how you can do the things better. I myself had a question about it, which I don't I don't think it's being used in this way, but I absolutely thought that right away. Like, well, now that I filled this out, are they going to look to me and be like, oh, you know what? Aaron's really not... Erin's really not cut out for this leadership because she or she is, she's the equalizer and provider, but really what we need... I mean, one of them is actually called the teacher and, and I'm not... I'm not a teacher at you know, and so there's different people. There's also a stimulator, a creator, a connector, advisor, influencer, and pioneer. And interestingly enough, you can see what the other, like, so I can see what my boss's roles are. And I think he's like, yeah, he's like a pioneer and influencer. And so we're like, you can kind of see how you're really different from some people and then really kind of similar to others. And like why it may, it kind of explains to like why maybe you work better with some people than others. It just says that I'm very consistent. And so that's like one of my strengths, I guess, which probably would make sense to you that I'm consistent, that people can rely on me, that kind of thing. So I think it's trying to frame everything in a pretty positive way. 
the idea that yeah, you that right. those are like your natural talents and your natural qualities completely locks you into that role, right? If the if that's like what your character is or your natural disposition is, then how are you going to become a pioneer? And so it also makes sense to sort of find somebody who's a pioneer in like the higher up leadership roles, because that's what we strive for, right? That's what we want our leaders to be is like innovators and, and whatnot. And so it will also shape how they view you, right? I don't know how much like performance review you get, but I get a performance review every year and I don't necessarily want, I wouldn't want a profile like that to feed my supervisor information about how to think of me and what terms to think of me and my performance. I just, it's kind of interesting and I think it can, um, it is ultimately supposed to give me some ideas about how to become a better leader if I want to make my way up the managerial chain, like how I might go about doing that. But you're right at the same time, does this kind of like pigeonhole me into this certain way? Like I'm sure, you know, my boss who is the president on the campus probably read that and I'm like, yep, that's Erin. All right. She's a provider, <laughs> you know, and I like the idea of the equalizer. That's actually my first role where I'm level headed. Mm-hmm. Sounds fine. I guess that sounds, that um, sounds a little, sounds little more less. gender neutral, too. Maybe it's just because it's like overall yeah. so so neutral. But the provider definitely sounds like sounds very gendered to me. The description sounds very gendered and it also invites exploitation. Like a provider is somebody who gives endlessly and without expecting anything in return. Right. And so that's not something that seems like an ideal professional profile to have. I don't know if other colleges have this type of report or this type of system. It is mostly used in corporate America because a lot of it, like I said, is connected to the idea of customer and customer service and things like that and working with clients. So that being said, does any of this relate more directly to the type of work you do in the publishing field? I mean, you're not necessarily working with customers, but you're working with a lot of other people, including writers, assistants, and things like that. I'm not really in a leadership role. And part of the reason that I wanted to go into the field that I'm in is I really wanted to be in a position where most of my work was collaborative versus instructive. And so I now have um, an assistant that I work with. But outside of that, I don't really, there's not a lot of leadership that's part of my role. I don't mentor anybody otherwise. I don't oversee anybody else's work otherwise. I don't direct other people. And so I don't, there's not a whole lot that I can say about that from from my perspective and from, from my job, my position that I'm in. Okay, well, let's frame that a different way. You do have to m- sort of manage, in a way, your writers. I mean, right, to keep them on track mm-hmm. or keep them going or moving yeah. in the right direction. I don't know if this is applicable or not. Do you ever feel like there's any disjunct between, you know, how male and female writers respond to you at all? (laughs) Have you ever had any? (laughs) So, I mean, because I do think you are, you are in a a position of authority. You're the gatekeeper for this person to have their work published. And so some of that I would imagine is keeping people on task, keeping them like on the deadline, making sure they're keeping their end of the the bargain up, so to speak, right? So does gender ever, if you feel comfortable discussing it, do you feel like your gender and the people you work with ever plays a role in those conversations and how particular authors respond to you? I do think that it does. It's not 
always the case. And I think the fact that I do have a PhD helps to sort of establish that authority and the idea that like, I know what I'm doing and I understand academic scholarship. Um, I think some of my colleagues who are also younger than I am sometimes struggle with that more, but I've definitely been uh, massively patronized about sort of how publishing works and how, you know, what would make a strong manuscript and what would sell well. And but to talk a little bit more about my role and my expertise, right, is I come in with a PhD in English. I've written a dissertation. I've published books. I understand academic scholarship because I've sort of done it before. But my primary expertise is academic publishing. I know what goes into publishing a strong book. I know how we market our books. I know where and how we sell them and what matters on that front. Most of our authors are understand that sort of setup and they understand what they're what they're bringing to the table and what I'm bringing to the table. But every once in a while I run into situations where that's not the case and um then sort of I have to assert myself and I have to explain our perspective of things and our side of things and generally speaking we usually, you know, we, it usually takes a conversation or two to sort of explain where we're coming from to meet in the middle. Sometimes that means pointing to the contract and just being like, look, like this is what this is what's right here. Black and white. You have it. I have it. That's what we need to work towards somehow. But a lot of, you know, working with authors for me is building relationships with people. And so that part of leadership, I, you know, I hadn't, I've never, I guess I haven't thought about it in those terms before, but in some ways, I guess that makes sense is, you know, we're, we are building relationships with people and we are working on a common goal and on a common project on a, on a shared project. And I do bring expertise to the table that I have to sometimes translate into, um, into conversations and in emails and in conversations into something that, that makes sense to somebody who comes to the table with a very different objective or a different goal in mind or something like that. So, so um, it's not that I had thought about it more in terms of like within my team, but that that does make sense to me. And again, I would say the relationship building part comes easy to me. The sort of uh, reinforcing rules is a little harder sometimes. So that's something and I, you know, and I don't know to what degree that's gendered and to what degree that's you know, a personality that's independent from gender. I don't know if there's a way to think about personality independent from gender, but I think that's a different conversation to be had. So that would be my response about uh, about leadership. <laughs> you kind of made me rethink, you know, this idea, like I've been strictly thinking of my leadership as working with my colleagues, but again, thinking about basically a teacher as a classroom leader. As facilitator, I'm leading and I do have to say, I, in my span of starting this, I think the first class I taught as an adjunct after my master's was in 2008. So I've been at this, 2008. Someone corrected me on that. I'm like, 2008, 2008. But anyway, I've been at this for a while now. And that, so that means that was 12 years ago when I was younger and I was less experienced. I did have some really scary experiences with male students. I haven't had these experiences with female students. And I wondered if these male students would have been so brash and bold to 
address me in the same way? I mean, would they have addressed a male the same way that they were addressing me? Because I did have a student who like literally went off and called me a bitch. I mean, a bunch of times. And you're, I mean, pardon my language, but like, I can't believe you fucking gave me this grade. You're just a bitch. And I was shaking. I mean, I had to like sort of take a break in the middle of class and I should have like reported that person, but I was just an adjunct professor. I didn't really know what mechanisms were in place. So that was really scary. I had another student, um, gosh, you did, this is really bad, but it was, uh, he would watch me from behind, you know, cause I'm at the board and he'd be like, wow, I just really like your shape. Was your shape always thick like that? First of all, I'm not used to being objectified like that anyway. I didn't handle that the right way. And I just don't think that male professors or instructors would probably have received similar treatment. And so as a leader, I mean, I'm still constantly growing. And I know now, you know, 12 years later, how I would address that, I would be like calling campus security right away and putting in some sort of note about behavior. But at the time, I was just kind of new and I didn't know. And I was overwhelmed, to be honest. I was kind of freaked out. So I think, you know, you made me think about those memories as well of how as a functioning like leader in the classroom, it was a little bit of a challenge to me being a younger female professor back in the day. And I've grown definitely for sure. But a lot of that has to do with sort of making you insecure, right? Like undermining your authority, making you insecure. And I think you're right. I mean, that's a vulnerability that men in a classroom just don't have. You know, and you could, there's no way to spin that. Like that's something that, that students can do in the classroom to undermine a, a female teacher's authority that there's no direct equivalent if they have a male instructor or a male teacher. Right. Like being actually scared of your students, like, or that they would do something like the guy that was in my face, yeah. I was shaking at the end of it. And I just feel like I had another experience that semester with a yeah. different man. There was another older male student who also met me with some angst and ire because he was chewing tobacco in class and spitting it out into a paper cup without a lid, which was not only disgusting and disruptive, but also I considered to be a biohazard. And again, he met me with a lot of angst, with foul language. And I just wondered after that, like, am I cut out for this job? I didn't realize that I'd have some of these really kind of scary confrontations in class. Again, I'd probably handle it much differently now, but at the time I was working as an adjunct and I had not received any guidance about how that particular institution dealt with such situations. I'm sorry you had to go through that, especially early in your career. Again, though, would this happen today? Or do you have, you know, do you think that you are sort of walking into the classroom with a different sense of authoritativeness? Um, do are the students aware this is a brand new teacher? I can probably pull this off. I can probably get away with it. That kind of thing. Um, I don't know if you know that's that's something that is just hypothetical now. It's just a hypothetical question, but at the same time, I wonder if you know the longer you are in the classroom, the more you sort of exude that confidence and that or authoritativeness that you don't have to fear that again in the future or not as frequently, at least. Uh, But that's certainly, you know, certainly something that, yes, call campus security and that student needs to be removed from the classroom. There's no two ways about that. But it's hard to make that call, especially in your first semester. Luckily, I never had anything where I felt threatened like that in this in quite the same way. 
yeah, I definitely have grown, but just all food for thought for, you know, how, again, men and women in the same roles are, can be treated very, very differently. And like you said, now, 10 years later, 12 years later, I have more confidence. And maybe those students saw that, like they probably, you know, could guess that I wasn't going to do much about it. I think it was the same year I found out the student had been live tweeting oh, comments from my. So horrible! This is so bad. We got a, but the student had been live tweeting just snippets of my lectures and like out of context, and it just made me sound like a crazy person because it was just like the weirdest stuff and like taken out of context or like a two second blurb, and I just thought that was really weird. And so I like actually confronted the person, and he was like, "Oh, I meant it as a compliment." And I'm like, "Yeah, I didn't really take it that way." And then that same student like wrote me at like two a.m. like, "Hey." How's it going? I'm like, this is getting weird. And so I just don't know. I don't know. I think it's it's an odd juxtaposition of gender, power, authority. And now I've learned to manage all of this, but it was just a little bit tough when I was like, you know, in my early 30s and kind of trying to figure it all out. I think it's important for other people to hear those narratives and, you know, you're not alone. But also I I didn't take the right steps to like deal with it. And like I've already said, a lot of this is probably tied to the idea of being an adjunct member of a faculty rather than a full-time member of the faculty. I feel like I just didn't have the resources that I needed. I didn't have the proper training, and we could probably do a whole episode on that in general. But what else were you thinking about as we move towards the end of the episode? Did you have any other looming questions or concerns relating to gender and leadership? Just one thing I've been thinking about throughout the conversation and in preparation for this episode a little bit too is the question of how these perceived gender traits that we've discussed in relation to leadership in the classroom and at the university level sort of map on to parenting styles and different concepts of what it means to be a good parent or the kind of parent that we want to be. And so some of the terms that we use throughout the episode already I think um, apply there as well if we look at different parenting styles and I don't know if you're familiar with these sort of definitions but there you know the I've thought about this before in other contexts and I've been reading up a little bit about this and the experts kind of distinguish between three different types of parenting styles one is the authoritarian which sort of has the characteristics that we might define as more masculine traits or that we've sort of discussed as more masculine in regards to leadership styles, which is a top-down approach, discipline-oriented, rule-oriented, and sort of expecting obedience from the children. And I think, as you mentioned to me, too, is the the sort of notion, uh, the cultural notion of the father as the more disciplinarian parent, I think is interesting, right? And you mentioned this idea of like, wait until your dad gets home. And I definitely am guilty of that every once in a while to sort of use that when I run out of options and I run out of things to say to just sort of fall back on that option. And I don't think that my kids necessarily assume that something worse will happen to them when he gets home, but somehow it still works as a threat, I guess. And so um, so that's sort of the authoritarian parenting style that's that has this disciplinary element to it. And I think a lot of people think that that's that's that style of parenting has fallen out of fashion a little bit, I would say. 
and people are more interested in having more compassionate and engaged relationships with their kids. And I think um, corporal punishment plays a role in that as well. I think we've sort of, in the cultural discourse, moved away a little bit from the history of using uh, physical punishment when we raise our children. And so, but, but there's still sort of, you know, those of us that try to have a more engaged parenting style sometimes face criticism or, and, or fear criticism from the older generation. And I at least know that sometimes I think that people, or I sometimes worry that people think that I'm a permissive parent and that I let my kids get away with things and that I let them do whatever they want. Uh, you know, from my parents and my in-laws and other, you know, other family, extended family members that might look from the outside um, on the relationship that I have with my kids. And that's not necessarily the case. If we look at this parenting uh, theory, if you will, there is um, the, the opposite of authoritarian is actually authoritative, which does rely more heavily on the relationship, on building a relationship with our children uh, being more responsive to their emotions, their reactions to certain rules. It, it's a very core component of that parenting style to implement boundaries, to set very clear boundaries, to be consistent, as you were saying earlier. But there's, the, there's, um, there's more of a relationship component, I think, that considers the kids, their personal uh, idiosyncrasies, what their strengths and weaknesses are, you know, understanding how they respond differently when they're hungry or when they're tired or whatever. And so this all of all of this is just sort of like a really long winded way of saying I'm wondering if in the same way that we can map sort of perceived gender characteristics onto these different leadership styles I'm wondering if we can also also map these perceived gender traits onto these different parenting styles and it would be interesting to hear from our listeners how if they have different parenting styles and their partners and how that sort of how if and the extent to which those are gendered in some way even if it is just sort of based on these perceived genders, gender traits that, you know, we've said we consider to be learned rather than innate. So that's something that I have been thinking about and that might be food for thought and food for a future episode where we can discuss that in more detail. I would love to hear from our listeners what they think about that um, and if they have any thoughts on that theory and how leadership applies to parenting as well. So if our listeners wanted to offer some feedback or thoughts about how parenting styles might play into those leadership roles and vice versa, where can they find us online? We are on Instagram as PhD in Parenting. And then we also have an email address. You can send us an email at phdinparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And I also, again, want to encourage everybody to leave us a review on Apple if you'd like. You can also share us with a friend if you like what you're hearing. Let us know that you're listening. If you put a screenshot of you listening in your stories, we can share that on Instagram. It would be great to see where everyone is listening, what episodes you're on. Let us know what your takeaways are, what resonates with you the most. And again, uh, give us some feedback on this episode. 
We look forward to hearing from you. And thank you so much for listening to us today and all the other days. And we look forward to coming to your ears again next week. All right. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening.